Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, um, you remember how to talk? Came back? <clears throat> All too quickly. <clears throat> how are we doing? Okay. <clears throat> and if it's not okay, <clears throat> I hope it's still okay. Um, I want to talk uh, tonight <clears throat> about um, equanimity with the way things are. <clears throat> so you can apply this to yourself wherever, whatever state of mind you happen to be in just in this moment. Um, you know, maybe this will support your, uh, your process. I wanted to start off with um, reading what you've been looking at the last couple of days. Uh, I'm not sure if, if anyone went through it with you, uh, but I want to and have it as a kind of um, starting point of the talk. The five reflections <clears throat> that the Buddha suggested to uh, contemplate regularly they're sometimes called the five daily reflections or the five remembrances. <clears throat> Here they are. Here's the facts. I am of the nature to age. Aging is unavoidable. I am of the nature to have ill health. Ill health is unavoidable. I am of the nature to die. Death is unavoidable. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. Separating from them is inevitable. My thoughts and words and deeds are my only true belongings. The results of my thoughts and words and deeds are inescapable. There's a number of different um, versions or translations, but um, pretty much the basic facts, five things, to reflect on every day. Aging, illness, death, everyone and everything near and dear to me I will be separated from and my happiness or unhappiness is the result of my actions which create my karma. Now, he didn't say reflect on this as a kind of punishment or to bum you out. In fact, he said, the more you reflect on this and, and come to terms with the way things are, then uh, the more the possibility of freedom 
and ease and non-contention with life. This is the, the doorway to freedom, coming to terms with the way things really are. Such a paradox. It's so, so brilliant as he started off his, his teachings with the first noble truth, there's suffering in life. Because he said the more one understands the way things are and that there is suffering in life, the more can, one can um, open to the end of suffering, the highest happiness. So I wanted to talk tonight about this quality of equanimity, which is really um, the, the ground of this highest happiness and peace, out of which the liberated mind and heart can emerge. In this world of change, as Anna talked about, those three characteristics, the first one being everything changes, anicca, anicca. In this world of change, trying to hold on to changing experience is suffering. This is the second noble truth. Attachment to things being a certain way, the way we want them to be, is inevitably suffering. A sure prescription for dukkha. Aversion to how things are and wishing they were different when this is how they are is also a sure prescription for suffering. But to come into harmony with this truth, as the uh, Anicca chant says, Anicca Vata Sankara, to be in harmony with this truth of impermanence brings great happiness. The uh, eight worldly conditions, or the eight vicissitudes, that probably many of you are familiar with, are the winds of change in life between praise and blame and fame and shame and pleasure and pain and loss and gain. Most of us do whatever we can to avoid the negative and go towards the positive. Understandable, there's nothing wrong with that movement of heart or mind, it's a natural movement of heart to not want to suffer, but it takes some courage and clarity and wisdom and inner strength to see that you can't have it only positive and to to really not be afraid of loss or blame or even shame or pain that, ah, this brings about a fearlessness. And uh, this is is something that uh, takes a while to to get. Um, uh, For me, actually, I'll I'll tell you a little, just as an aside, a little 
story about how I really was ready to commit to the Dharma. It was the first summer at Naropa in 1974 when I was completely falling in love with the Dharma and listening to Joseph uh, Goldstein give, uh, give his talks that were kind of letting me know there's a possible way. And one day I was uh, in this class, Essential Buddhism, just ready to hear the Dharma and, and then we were meditating and I happen to remember that while uh, we were meditating that I was wearing my New York Knicks t-shirt which I got because I was a season ticket holder to the New York Knicks in their glory days. This is in the early 70s. You know, Willis Reed, and if you're, I usually say, if you're old enough to remember, I'm in, I'm in the right cl- crowd. If you're a basketball fan, you know. Willis Reed and Walt Frazier and, you know, Earl the Pearl Monroe was my favorite player. Dave DeBusher, number 22. <laughs> Great forward, Bill Bradley. We could go through the whole lineup. <clears throat> I love Dave DeBush. Great rebounder. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, I was there with my Knicks T-shirt, and I had this horrible thought, which I actually then went up to Joseph. It was the first time I ever spoke to Joseph because I was so distraught. I finally got the mustered up the courage to speak to him, and I said, uh, "Listen, um, I'm a season ticket holder." to uh, the Knicks. If I get into this stuff, am I gonna go into Madison Square Garden and be saying, nice shot, Frazier. Good move, Havlicek. Nice pass to Busher. Because I wasn't ready to sign on for that. I could get very passionate. Fortunately, I got passionate about something that kind of chilled me out a bit. But he gave me the perfect response that completely hooked me. He said, you'll probably be just as enthusiastic, but you'll get over a loss sooner. I said, okay, I'm in. Ready to go. I can get over a loss sooner. That, 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 was, that was what I needed, yeah. To get over loss sooner. What? What a wonderful secret. Not to avoid feeling it, but to get over it and not be stuck in it. As Joseph's wonderful contribution, one of many to uh, 20th and 21st century Dharma, anything can happen at any time. Anything can happen at any time. This is the way the world is. You never know. And so rather than having an idea that you're supposed to arrive at some kind of magical destination where everything is all right and doesn't go wrong is really a setup for, uh, for disappointment. Even though you probably realize this intellectually, we still hanker after the perfect meditation, oh, when I have this happen in my practice, then I know I'll have arrived. But what the practice shows us, hopefully you're starting to see, how many different 
cycles you go through. Even in a day, we seem to pack more than 24 hours in a day on retreat. How many different moods have you had in a day while you were here? And so it's not to get to any one perfect place, but it's seeing, oh, the highs come and they go, the lows come and they go, and I can be here for it all and find a place of balance and actually even learn to enjoy the ride. And then the more you do that here on the retreat, that starts, that understanding and perspective starts to carry over to our lives. The highs come and they go. The challenges and difficulties come and they go. And I can be here for the ride of my life. This is what we're learning. And this is what our task is. To learn to let go of the control that we never had in the first place and to learn how, we, how to accept things just as they are. Not that you shouldn't improve if you can improve. If you can make things better and there's a, a sense of balance and goodwill and kindness towards yourself or to others, fabulous. But if things are the way they are and there's not much you can do about them, you have two choices, either wish they were different and suffer or somehow come to terms with the way they are and let go of the agenda that you think life should have. And this is what equanimity is about. It's a, a spaciousness that allows things to be just as they are. You know, in the, uh, the seven uh, factors of of awakening, of, of enlightenment. There's energizing factors, uh, investigation and energy and joy. There's the mindfulness, which is in the center. And then there's the, um, the stilling factors. There's calm, which I think of as a kind of settled stillness. There's concentration, which I think of as a focused kind of stillness. And then there's equanimity, which is a, a spaciousness, a stillness that comes from having all the space in the world. And in the various lists, equanimity holds a unique position. It's the end of almost every list, every list that I can think of. If you see the four buildings here, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka, it's the last one. It's the last of the Brahma Viharas after loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy. Equanimity holds them all together. It's the last of the seven factors of enlightenment of, that I just named. It's the uh, the, the last of the paramis, the ten paramis, the ten perfections of, of awakening that start out with things like generosity and morality and, and uh, patience and renunciation and effort and wisdom and resolution and uh, 
all of those and, and loving kindness. And the last one is equanimity. It's the, it's like the crowning, the, the, the peace, the resistance, the, the final dessert, the final flowering of a perfection of practice. It's the last of the jhanas of the four jhanas. So you can see, and also in the progress of insight, all the different stages of insight leading up to a very profound equanimity out of which awakening happens. It's the precursor to awakening, the heart that is completely open and spacious and unruffled by the, the changes of experience, the highs or the lows. And as you uh, maybe see in the, those five reflections, it's the last in the five reflections because this last one is about karma, which is really the basis of equanimity. We are all owners of our karma. Basically, there is a natural law and an unfolding that is really the, the heart of equanimity. As Ajahn Sumedho says very succinctly, his pithy teaching to just realize, oh, it's like this. If you can just keep on applying that to whatever your experience is, this is the equanimity practice. Oh, it's like this. Oh, sadness is like this. Joy is like this. Loss is like this. Confusion and fear is like this. Love and compassion and peace is like this. Then it's not like, it's like this and God damn it, I wish it were different. It's just, oh, it's like this. And it's okay. So it is really seeing that all of life is following the natural law, the, the unfolding that we are um, partners in. We are playing the game of our life and of life and seeing how it folds and unfolds, but we're not writing the script. So this equanimity coming to terms with the way things are and realizing that not only can't we control life out there, we can't control our experience in here and we can't control or protect even those that we care most about from experiencing their own lessons and their own sufferings and as well as their own joys. This is a big part of equanimity practice to realize that you can't fix, you can't rescue, you can't control the lives of those that you care most about as well as your own. I learned uh, of, in a very powerful way um, the, uh, the profundity of, of equanimity in one um, 
one practice period. It was that same, I mentioned it uh, last time I gave a talk on that six-week chunk of, of practice I was doing all the Brahma Viharas and um, uh, leading up after metta and compassion and, and sympathetic joy to equanimity. And the equanimity phrase is very much like the, fi- the last of the five reflections, at least one of the translations of it, where you say, um, you, are, you are the owner of your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends upon your actions, not only on my wishes for you. And first when I heard it, it seemed, well, that's pretty cool. And not like cool hip, but cool cold. You're, you're the owner, your actions, you're the owner of your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends upon your actions, not on my wishes for you. But when you really get it, oh, this is how it is, then you're letting go of thinking that you can make it okay for everybody. And I was on this, in this one particular meditation where I kind of got how good the news is. And I had this sitting where I had, um, I put different people, you know, when you do the, the Brahma Vihara practices, you have different categories and you put, uh, you, you say it to different categories of people, whether it's a benefactor or a neutral person or loved one or difficult or whatever. In this particular sitting, I put different people in the chair that I was telling the news to. And I put my wife Jane in the chair and said, dear, you are the owner of your karma, your happiness and unhappiness, etc." And it was like a gift I was giving, like, oh, this is how it works. And then I put various friends in and each time I felt really, really good in my own heart about getting the news. And then at some point, my son, who was 10 years old at the time, got in the chair. And all of a sudden, it was a very different feeling. Oh, wait a second. Your happiness and and unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. Oh my goodness. And I then experienced what I call my clockwork orange sitting, if you are old enough to remember (laughs) Clockwork Orange, and if you remember the movie uh, where the the protagonist is deprogrammed or programmed by having his eyelids open, seeing all of these very horrific images, this was my Clockwork Orange sitting. And there was my 10-year-old son, Adam, as I was saying these, these phrases over and over, and I saw every parent's nightmare for the next hour plus, at least an hour, hour and a quarter, I saw drug addiction, I saw car accidents, I saw mental illness, I saw all kinds of troubles. And with each one, I'd say it, and then I saw it, and I'd go, 
oh, and I just kind of let it land. Oh, that could happen. And then I'd say it again and oh, yeah, that could happen too. And it was, it was a turning point in my parenting because going through that, you know, if you sit there long enough and just say, yes, this too, and this too, and this too. Finally, after a while, I said, yeah, any one of these things can happen. And as much as I love this human being, I can't live his life for him. And it morphed into that whole, the whole phrase morphed into, uh, I honor your life's journey. I honor your journey. Whatever it is, I'm going to be here and rooting you on as much as I can, but you have your own life to live. And I can't take on thinking that I can rescue you or fix it. Very powerful. This is powerful medicine to just try on it all. And that's why the five reflections are so powerful to keep on trying them on and saying, just like you did today with, with, with Eugene, oh yeah, this is what death might be like. Let's just play around with it and envision it. You will become older. If you live tomorrow, you'll be a day older. And whatever decade you're in, we are all going through this process of aging. We all will become sick. We all have become sick and we will probably continue at some point to face illness. And certainly we will all die. Now, can you come to terms with that and not take it personally and not see it as some kind of mistake, some kind of, you know, bad end game, but just see it as a natural thing. As I was saying when uh, Anna and, and Eugene and I did our, our triad this, this afternoon, you know, everything else in life is part of this divine plan. To think that somehow death is a mistake is kind of missing a very central piece. It's all perfectly designed. I read to you a, a really um, potent poem on this by um, Jennifer Wellwood, The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human ripe beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed. 
as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the, re- the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. The Dakini speaks the, the divine, the deva, who's saying the truth. The wild dance of no hope. That doesn't mean that it's bad news. It's just, okay, this is the way it is. Stop hoping for it to be different than how it is. Now, certainly, with all of these first four reflections, there's, there's bound to be sadness and suffering and loss as you're getting familiar with this body that doesn't do what it used to or breaks down or starts to come near the end or you lose people who you care so deeply about. This is part of life and so is grieving part of life. It's not that you should say, okay, well, let's get over it because that's the way things are. No, there's loss, there's sadness, there's integrating all the feelings that are natural and human. Uh, I'm just remembering now the the famous um, uh, anecdote about Marpa, the, the great Tibetan master, Marpa, the translator, in the, one of the greats in the lineage, the Kagyu lineage, um, who is just a brilliant teacher and talking about everything being just an illusion. And then he lost his, uh, his son. His son passed away. And there's this um, story of him um, plowing in the fields and weeping. And one of his students comes up and says, uh, Master, you have told us that it's all an illusion. Why, why are you crying? And Marpa says, yes, it's all an illusion. And the losing of one's child is the saddest of all illusions. And so I cry. Not that you need to or should bypass that. There's a danger in that too, to to feel all your feelings fully, but not to be stuck in them and define who you are because this happened or that happened. 
because as probably you all have gotten a sense if you've been practicing for a while, suffering has some great gifts in it. Suffering is what deepens our compassion. Suffering is what connects us to all of life and connects us to each other. We're not alone in it. As uh, Kristen Neff, who uh, has written a book called Self-Compassion, says, her, her prescription, when you're really hurting, saying, this is a moment of suffering. Suffering is part of life. May I hold my suffering with compassion. May I hold my suffering with kindness. So just to, to really honor the suffering, but not be completely lost in it. And there is the, the kind heart, the wise heart that can hold it all right there. There's the equanimity, not that you don't feel it, but that you can hold the pain and the sorrow and the loss and the grieving with a spaciousness that says, oh, and grieving is like this, and sorrow is like this, and pain is like this, and it's still okay. It can be held in a a wider field of awareness because the, the awareness of sorrow is not sorrowful. The awareness of, of grief is larger than the grieving. So to honor the, the, the pain of all of the, the loss and, and the adjustments as we grow old and sick and, and, then, and then die, but to see the gifts in it. And in fact, in another teaching that I love, the Buddha talks about suffering being a doorway to happiness. He says, suffering can be the causative factor for faith to arise. Faith can lead to gladness. Gladness can lead to joy. Joy can lead to happiness, which can lead to contentment and equanimity up to the highest happiness. Suffering starts though. Suffering can lead to faith. Isn't that interesting? Let me ask you, how many people here have been motivated by suffering to, uh, to explore and, and um, open to Dharma practice? Take a look around. That's how it works, isn't it? It's not like, you know, I wouldn't wish suffering on anybody, but look what it brought us all to because it shakes us out of our complacency in thinking, oh, this is how things are. Okay, everything's cool, la-di-da, to, oh my goodness, how can I make sense of this? And so we start to look for a deeper kind of answer than thinking we've got it all figured out. So impermanence certainly has its, its sorrow and sadness in there. But that's not the only, the only story with impermanence. Yeah, it has loss, but it's not just about loss. If you only think of impermanence as leading to loss 
and having to let go of everything that was near to you, then it is, you know, you're doomed only to see it in terms of suffering. And it becomes despairing and gloomy. But impermanence has another side to it as well. Because everything is continually changing, it means that there's a, a continual transformation into something new that's never been here again, before. It is the, the basis of continual creativity. Isn't that amazing? This, this day has never been here before. This moment has never been here before in this configuration. These feelings are coming out in a unique new configuration. Impermanence really allows for the mystery, the miracle of continual creativity. That's the nature of the universe. But we miss that when we just focus on impermanence, loss. Oh, isn't that terrible? And if we can somehow learn not only to accept impermanence, but to embrace it, to embrace this next chapter of growing older, seeing what it's like. This is part of the trip. Seeing what the dying experience is like. Seeing what illness, how we can open up to that too. Then it doesn't have to be all gloom and doom. It's the next chapter in your life. Grace disguised as obstacles. This is, uh, that's a, a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a poem actually from Dana Falls. I don't know if I can find it here, but I was looking for something. All, all the time I was looking for, for things to be just fine, but really it was just grace disguised as obstacles. Let's see if I can find that. I wanted to read something else from here. Let's see. I'll I'll read this from um, about Ramdas, who probably many of you are quite familiar with. You're old enough to remember. How many people read Be Here Now? Pretty cool, huh? We got lucky. We got lucky going through the 60s. We got lucky having the Beatles. We got lucky having Ramdas and Be Here Now. We got pretty lucky. Ramdas, who I'm sure most of you know, had a major stroke in uh, 1997, I think it was, losing his gift of eloquence that could mesmerize uh, a, a an audience, and I remember he was. We did a a um, a day long after his stroke as a kind of benefit for him, and it was one of the first times that he was he came out and spoke in public, uh, very haltingly, 
he's actually gotten so uh, pretty amazing his his recovery although there's still silences in in his speech but that day it was it was halting and and it was very moving he didn't say much but it was so moving but i saw him afterwards and uh that afternoon and and he was really you know he was really sad he said you know i don't see how i can i can do do this you know because i don't have the the words anymore and then he integrated his loss in a, a magnificent way and he's he does lots of he's softer and deeper and more profound than ever but this is what he wrote from uh, still here i used to say i'm a golfer and a sports car driver but now I'm someone telling that story. I can't golf or drive anymore. If I cling to that identity, I suffer. The stroke was like a samurai sword cu- cutting apart the two halves of my life. It was a demarcation between two stages. Before I had the stroke, I was full of fears about aging. The stroke took me through one of my deep fears. and i'm here to report that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself the stroke cleaned out some of the pockets of fear it's happened and here i am and the result of this change he says is that he's grown closer to god than ever before what more could i ask grace disguised as obstacles you don't know how many times you've probably like me have gotten into some really challenging experiences that have borne the greatest fruit even to see oh i can get through that is a big accomplishment that you have an inner resource and strength that you didn't realize so if we can not only accept but embrace what life is giving us then we continue the adventure instead of fearing what's coming next which means what's required is to let go of your knowing of what's coming next let go of what this means oh now this happened to me and so i'll never you can fill in the blank or i'll always or you don't know where it's going to lead Can you think of some really difficult experiences that have helped you grow? If you can think of you don't have we're not going to check in, but if you can think of one where through a very difficult experience you grew in a a very profound way. Here's your hand. There you go. So you don't know. You don't know. and that's part of the equanimity where you let go of knowing you let go of figuring things out you let go of knowing how it's going to be you let go of your stories this is from uh from one uh yogi for her first retreat where she kept on trying to figure out what was happening next and then she finally it was a very difficult retreat until the end and then she got it 
She said, the one thing that is indelibly in my brain is finally getting, you don't have to figure it out. That would never have registered as an option before. And just today, when I was doing walking meditation, struggling as my thoughts were going round and round, those words came into my mind. I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, what is true right now in this moment? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and various body sensations coming and going. And the rest will balance itself out in its own time, I thought to myself. And I resumed my walking. What a revelation. It's not so much figuring out, it's not figuring out that the real peace comes from. There's a a line in the third Zen patriarch I voted from uh, earlier. He says, um, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. So that means letting go of knowing, of knowing how it is. And it means um, being willing to accept the scary with the unknown. And I think before we go on, I just want to ask you for a moment to uh, go inside and ask yourself, what's hard for you to accept? Maybe about any of those reflections, aging or illness or death or separation. What's hard for you to accept? What's hard for you to find balance and not fight against? And now, just imagine that it might be okay. That you don't know. Just try on for a moment what it would be like to let it be okay and to open up to the possibilities. And notice if there's any difference in just even opening to that, entertaining the possibility that can be okay. You've gone through everything else and have learned through it. Maybe you'll do that with this one too. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. So one way that you can balance the fear of what's wrong or what might go wrong is um, gratitude. I think that's a really important piece that's not spoken of too much in terms of equanimity. But when we can open up, and I'm, I'm very big on, on gratitude, that when we can open up and see all the blessings, all the goodness, it, it doesn't deny the other, but it just gives us a greater context with which to hold our challenges, the 10,000 joys as well as the 10,000 sorrows. And Change is possible, 
when we can hold and open, even if we've been focusing on what's wrong and on how things are going to not work out, it's possible if you keep on tuning into all the blessings in your life, even at this age, to open up and hold your life with gratitude as a context for all the challenges that come through. I know change is possible, and I want to share with you uh, my favorite story from Awakening Joy. Uh, it's about my mom. Maybe m- some of you are familiar with this, and if you if you haven't seen her on YouTube, I I encourage you. Uh, she's a star. It's up to 212,000 views because she's very funny. If you go to Confessions of a Jewish Mother, and the subtitle is How My Son Ruined My Life. <laughs> because she did not see things in a positive light. She was a complainer and a worrier and a kvetch, as she says. If she didn't have anything to worry about, then she really got worried. That was her big thing. And uh, I was, this is when she was 89, and I was um, at down visiting her. My sister was uh, out of town. My sister lives right near her in, in, in Santa Monica. My mom lives in Marina del Rey. And I was doing, I was writing about gratitude and seeing all, getting all this research around gratitude um, that I was reading to her. Boosts your immune system, it's better relationships, and you exercise more, and you do all these things. And um, I said, what do you think? She said, it's very impressive. And I said, Mom, how about doing gratitude practice? And she said, dear, I know I'm very blessed, but I've been looking at the glass half empty for a long time, and I don't think I'm about to change. And I said, "Mm, Mom, if you could, would you change? She said, yeah, if I could, I I would, but, you know, don't hold your breath. I said, okay, let's play a game. She's open to playing games. She's got a lot of moxie. And I said, every time you complain, I'll just remind you, and, and you say, and my life is very blessed. Because she said she knows she's blessed. And, and like she'd say, oh, it's so cold here in Marina del Rey, right? <laughs> and, oh yeah, and my life is very blessed. And she said, okay, let's do it. I had so many opportunities that week <laughs> as the, one complaint after another rolled off her tongue and, and we laughed the whole week. And that first week I called her a lot afterwards just to kind of keep it going and a friend of hers kept it on down there with her too. Anyway, magically it stuck. And she kept on with this and still talks about this. And what I put in the book besides sharing that anecdote is a, is a poem that she wrote me when she it was seven months later, and we always exchange poems on our birthdays in our, our family. We write, our, write poems. And she was going, uh, she was losing her sight. She had macular degeneration. It was starting to go. And this is what she wrote, this excerpt from the poem. 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave 
about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty, it's overflowing to be sure. If my mom can change at 89, anybody can change. And not only did she stay with it, actually she, at first my wife Jane said, oh, well, it's cute, you got this little game going and now she's, you know, but she really changed. Almost every, mm, not a minute or two goes by in the last five years in our conversation on phones when she says, I'm so blessed. And she's kept up with it. I was with her this last, I was just there with her uh, uh, this last weekend. And as I, I think I mentioned, she's in, in hospice now. And I, I came in on Saturday morning into her room and she was in deep contemplation and not, not having, uh, uh, it was not a troubled look on her face. It was kind of like just deep and pensive. And I said, uh, she opened up her eyes and there I was. And I said, hey mom, she's 94 now. And I said, hey mom, uh, what were you thinking? And she said, my mind was completely devoid of all thoughts except thank you, God, thank you, God. I said, whoa, I think I'm going to quote you on that. She said, will I get a commission? She's a character. I spoke to her just before I, I, I came in here, and I said, hey, I'm about to give a talk on aging, illness, and death. Uh, any... Uh, any more words of advice? Remember I said at the very beginning, she said, don't worry. And she said, uh, yeah, go gently into that good night. The opposite of do not go gently into that good night. Go gently into that good night. Don't fight it, that it's really okay. So it's possible to change, to start seeing what's good and all the blessings. And that allows for you to have some spaciousness. Yeah, there's the joys, there's the sorrows, and here I am, and it's okay. And then as you learn more and more to accept and let go of your agenda and embrace and let go of knowing even, then it becomes like an adventure, which is a whole different way to enter into this phase of your life. And she, when going gently didn't mean that she didn't keep on living. You know, she's a, a voracious reader until the end. Now she listens to books on tape, you know, and I read her stuff and now she's listening to, uh, I put a, an album of like uh, eight hours worth of music that she just, uh, from from the 40s and 50s and you know she's just singing along most of the time now you don't have to figure it out 
You don't have to come up with a plan. You can more and more trust that you can meet the moment. This is the basis of equanimity, that you can trust, not that everything will work out just the way you want, but that your awareness will meet the moment when it needs to. It always has. We just kind of forget that it has all our life. And here it is, the next chapter. Oh, and now there's this. What is called for in trust, the way I see it, is seeing that this world, with all of its dangers and all of its challenges, is basically a good place to be. Einstein said, perhaps the most important question a human being can ask themselves is, is the universe friendly or not? If you think of the universe as being unfriendly and dangerous, then that's what you'll, you'll be spending your, all your time warding it off against dangers. And sure, it has its dangers. You want to take care of yourself. But if you see it as basically a friendly place that's here to support you, it's been here to support you your whole life, if you invite it, it will be here for you, then you will see all of the support that you have. And you can let go and really trust. As uh, Gendon Rinpoche, great Tibetan master says, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Let the game happen on its own, springing up and falling back without changing anything and all will vanish and reappear without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. So how to learn to let go and relax? We're doing it here in this practice. Every moment that you're saying, oh, I can be with this one too. There's the capacity and I don't have to fix it or change it. I can open up with grace to it. Then you move from what I call going from, f- from flailing about to a deep peace. And I, as an analogy, I think of um, learning to swim. Do you remember when you first learned to swim and somebody put you in a pool and you were kind of bobbing up and down and, and maybe they said, just relax, it's okay, just relax. And you're kind of you're saying, relax, I'm going down here. I'm going up and down. And then finally you kind of get treading how magical that is. Oh, less is better, less is better. And then there's the ultra magical moment where you completely stop all effort, let go, and just lean back. And you realize the water was here to support you all along, going from flailing to floating. This is what we're learning to do, to really trust 
that life is here to support us. And that allows us to let go and have a sense of equanimity, knowing that we're held and that the awareness can hold it all as well. I think I'll close actually with something that I read uh, to people when they're dying um, from the Tibetan Book of the Dead about this kind of a, an encouragement to, um, to let go and trust. Remember the clear light, the pure, clear, white light from which everything in the universe comes to which everything in the universe returns. The original nature of your own mind, the natural state of the universe unmanifest. Let go into the clear light, trust it, merge with it. It is your own true nature. It is home. The visions you may experience exist within your consciousness. The forms they take are determined by your past attachments, your past desires, your past fears, your past karma. These visions have no reality outside your consciousness. No matter how frightened some of them may seem, they cannot hurt you. Just watch them pass through your consciousness. They'll all pass in time. No need to become involved with them. No need to become attracted to the beautiful visions. No need to be repulsed by the frightening ones. No need to be seduced or excited by the sexual ones. No need to be attached to them at all. Just let them pass. Fundamentally, they have no more reality than this. Remember these teachings. Remember the clear light, the pure, bright, shining white light of your own nature. It is deathless. If you look into the visions, you can experience and recognize that they are composed of the same pure, clear, white light as everything else in the universe. No matter where or how far you wander, the light is only a split second, a half breath away. It is never too late to recognize the clear light. Let go into it. Trust it. Merge with it. It is your own true nature. It is home. Let's sit for a moment. attention. So again, I think like last, last time, we'll have the bell ring at uh, five after and uh, come back for one last. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.